For those of you who are Salvation Army officers or any of you who've ever done any public speaking, there are times, especially when you've been uh, uh, doing this for as, as long as some of us have, there are times when during that period of time you get opposition to something you've said. I remember in uh, one core, this was back in the early 1990s, we, uh, I, I, I was preaching and a lady stood up at the back and she said, Captain Mingay, I cannot sit and listen to this any longer. I am leaving right now and you know why I'm leaving. And she walked out, she slammed the front door, she slammed the main door and kind of, uh, you know, it kind of uh, sport the moment really <laughs> because it was all going so very, very well. Um, and she, she had a moan about something I'd said because I'd spoken about the beauty of the name Shepherd and she happened to not get on with a lady in the corps whose name was Mrs. Shepherd. True. <laughs> really, really difficult. I, I didn't know that uh, Commissioners Anthony and Jill were going to be here today, but I remember uh, Divisional Youth Councils many years ago in uh, Birmingham, in Dudley actually, where um, Anthony was the Divisional Youth Secretary, uh, and he had a boxing ring. He was talking about good fighting against evil, and all these kids there, and it was full to the brim. It was a great, great weekend. Uh, and uh, Anthony did the service from inside the boxing ring. And he was speaking away there, and some idiot stood up and criticised him. And Anthony, do you remember this? <laughs> Let me refresh your memory. <laughs> some bloke stood up and criticised him, and he said, you come up here and have it out with me. So the officer walked up there and got into the ring and started beating seven bells out of Anthony. Um, and Anthony's point was that, uh, you know, you, you have to be aware that sometimes these things happen. Sometimes you get uh, opposition, especially when you're sort of giving the Christian message. Do you remember that now? Does that? Yeah. Can you remember who that officer was? <laughs> That's who it was, yes. We had it all planned out. It was all choreographed, but it was a great, great event. You still get people mentioning it now, don't we? It's nuts. Um, but it was good. And that's what happens. And sometimes when you're speaking the truth, there is big opposition. Now, last week, Carolyn showed us how Jesus set out his clear message of God's good news, that great mission statement, his first sermon, and uh, we read it together uh, earlier. Now today we're going to look at the reaction to those words uh, from those in the synagogue, from those who heard it firsthand. We need this context right now. This is very, very important. So here is Luke 4.22. It's the kind of um, carryover verse from last week to this. Everyone spoke well of him and was amazed by the gracious words that came from his lips. Let's go to Luke 4, 29, 28. When they heard this, the people in the synagogue were furious. Italics, colors, capital letters, all mine. Just to make the point that within six verses, we have the gracious Jesus becoming someone who nearly gets himself thrown off a cliff. And so Jesus preaches. And at the end of verse 22, somebody says this. How can this be? Isn't this Joseph's son? 
Now we can read this in two ways. Because remember, he's in his hometown. And people could have been saying, wow, he knows how to preach. Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't he good? That's how we can generally look at this. On the other hand, there could be a pause. And this is probably the way to read it. There's probably a pause after how can this be? Everyone spoke well of him and was amazed by the gracious words that came from his lips. How can this be, they asked. Hang on a moment. Just one, Evie, this is for you. Just one cotton-picking minute. How can this be? Isn't this Joseph's son? It's derisory. It's an insult. And it's this that prompts Jesus to start speaking the truth once again. He realized that while they were living in his hometown, they were not necessarily his friends. Here was a narrow-minded group of Pharisees who knew his local story. They knew about his unusual birth. They did not know the meaning or the message or the miracle of his birth. And they had always known him as the illegitimate one. And they imply by their question that because he is illegitimate in their understanding, so he couldn't lead the people of Israel, much less preach in the synagogue. Deuteronomy 23 says that nobody of illegitimate birth can do that, can take any leadership position in the synagogue or even in the nation. So they're questioning Jesus' parentage and they are questioning his authority. By referring to him as Joseph's son, they disgrace him by failing to not call him by his name. It's not a formal greeting. They do not say, Jesus, son of Joseph, which is how they would ordinarily do it in a respectful way. They do not say, Jesus, son of Joseph. They refer to him as Joseph's son. The question is designed to put him in his place. Now, Mark chapter 6, verse 1 to 6 tells this same story, but it tells it a little more clearly. You've got it there. Uh, Jesus left the part of the country, returned to his hometown. The next Sabbath began teaching. Many who heard him were amazed. They asked, where did he get all this wisdom and all the power to perform such miracles? Then they scoffed. Hang on a moment. He's just a carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon. That's something for another conversation. And his sisters live right here among us. They were deeply offended and refused to believe in him because of his illegitimacy. Now this might help us to interpret the next sentence, which is uh, where he says, you might say to me, physician, here, heal yourself. What they are saying is, we've all seen you perform these miracles and we're impressed by that. We're impressed by the fact that you can do that in Capernaum, here, there and everywhere. But why don't you heal yourself of your illegitimacy if you're that good? That's what they're saying, effectively. And so Jesus says, I tell you, 
no prophet is accepted in the prophet's hometown. And he gives examples. Here's the next bit, verses 24 to 27. He reminds them of the time when Israel has rejected her prophet, prompting God to send them Gentiles instead. The story of Elijah sent to feed the prophets, uh, sent, sent, uh, sent to feed a Gentile while Jews starved. The story of Elisha healing Naaman while Jews suffered. Just when they expected to hear about God's vengeance on Israel's enemies, Jesus says this. He says, no, you are the unworthy ones. You are the unclean. Israel has been unfaithful. That's you. So what is this telling us this morning? Firstly, there's two thoughts. Firstly, his listeners had a fixed idea of what God's blessing should be or what it should look like. Indeed, through their own intransigence, they put God in a box. They were so focused on their notion of who belonged to God and who didn't that they missed the opportunity of universal grace that Jesus was bearing. The gospel says that they were filled with rage and drove him out of town. How dared Jesus tell them who should be included? And they had no room for this kind of grace because they thought of themselves only as God's chosen people. Now, of course, that was true. But they had also hardened their hearts against God helping anybody else. They wanted God to be their God and nobody else's God. They tried to put God in a little orthodox box of their own making. God was theirs and theirs alone. One writer says this, orthodoxies can lead to a sense of entitlement, privilege and superiority, not to mention power over another person. Orthodoxies can foster communities that are insular, isolated, and exclusive. There are, of course, all sorts of orthodoxies. Secular, business and institutional, political, left, right, center, religious, church and denominational, and it includes a salvationist orthodoxy too. And I think it's true to say that many churches, including non-denominational and new churches, both small and mega, have created their own orthodoxies, some of which have little to do with a bigger redemption picture. Pure orthodoxy can be a beautiful thing, but when you create your own, then the consequence can be fracture, disunity, and exclusivity. We do it this way. This is God's way. Any of you of a certain age, I don't know if you remember back in the 70s, there used to be a song that was going around the Salvation Army world and it said this, I've got the Lord on my side, on my side, on my side. I've got the Lord on my side, on my side. Great words. Anybody remember that? Yes? Did somebody say yes? Yeah, yeah. Thank you, thank you. Anybody else remember that one? I've got the Lord on my side, on my side, on my side. I've got the Lord on my side, on my side. And we sang this because it was a new song. We sang it with gusto. It was a new song. The trouble is, it's theological rubbish. God is not on my side. That implies that I lead him. That implies that there's another side that is being led where he is being led. It's wrong. Aren't we on the Lord's side? Hello? 
Yeah, thank you. Thanks, Jason. Jason's on the Lord's side. We're on the Lord's side, aren't we? We're on the Lord's side, aren't we? Yeah, let's remember that. (laughs) What the Jews in the synagogue didn't understand was that God had called them to reach out to the undeserving, not to knock them down, but to lift them up. Certainly they commended the notion of compassion that Jesus preached, but their compassion was bound by a wrong mental framework. The subtext was, unless you act and think like us, you're not included. And that, my friends, is how a sect thinks. Christ's message was to welcome the marginalized, love the foreigner and the outcast, whatever it took, whatever it meant for any kind of orthodoxy. You see, God's love and blessing cannot be boxed within the confines of human prejudice and preference. God's story for us all, as the songsters sang, is a big fat word called grace. God is grace. Ultimate, unlimited grace. Grace to all. And that is what this cross says. This cross behind me. Leads to our second point, which is all of us have responsibility for the prophetic task. Or if you like, with God There can be no box. Once we understand grace for ourselves, then we too are charged with spreading the truth of the word. All Christians are given a prophetic task. In this world now, this message of love and grace is needed more than ever. So I thank God that we can be proud of this. It is God's grace. He leads us as we sang in our very first song this morning. For the orthodox Pharisees, Jesus' message was secondary to the structure and rituals of the synagogue. God in a box. But orthodoxy is sometimes defined as a deep-seated sense of superiority, and we cannot be like that. The Holy Spirit must be allowed his way with his people, with his church. Like Jesus in Luke 4, the prophetic task says, I will tell you the truth. God's all-embracing love and grace is that truth. And even when we realize that God won't fit into any kind of box or container, we can never fully understand, do justice to the essence of God. It won't be enough. His attributes are so immense and so all-embracing that mere language cannot suffice. Human description can only see through the glass darkly. Even when we use words like wonder and Majesty and all those academic terms beginning with the prefix omni, all, it still isn't enough. Our God is so much more than we can think. And part of being a mature Christian is learning how to put our own boundaries and expectations aside in order to listen to God. When the radical inclusiveness of Jesus' message became clear to those in his home congregation, their self-created orthodoxy and traditional thinking overtook the joy that they initially had in receiving a prophet of God in their midst. They were blinded by self-importance and didn't want to believe that God's grace was not subject to their list of who might be in and who might be out. So they resort to personal insult 
and they try to put Jesus in his place in a box. There's another angle on this, finally. Sometimes we put God in the box of one who holds our past against us. Our minds tell us that he cannot possibly love us for this reason or for that reason or forgive us for this reason or that reason. It's an imaginary box of our own making. Remember God's big, fat grace. Calvary grace. Today, often the meaning and magnitude of that grace scandalizes us so much that we can't receive it for ourselves as we should. It's almost too good to be true for us. But if by this tunnel vision we're unable to receive that grace, then it's difficult to be people of the prophetic task, giving away the good news of the kingdom. So Jesus comes to us and he says, as I've welcomed you, so you must welcome all into the kingdom. Whatever it takes, show them the grace and Calvary love which excludes nobody. You think of the pain and the insult he went through when he was trying to do the Father's will, the God on whose side he was. And you realize how powerful the cross is for us too. So may we speak truth. And if we are driven out of town, Scripture says that God will be our guide. God will be our protector through it all. Amen. Amen. Mark read to us a lovely poem by Andrew King, Canadian poet. I've got another poem that I'm going to read which I conclude with. It's called Escaping from the Boxes. And I'd like you to listen very carefully to these words. And after I've read this, we're just going to go back to the theme song that we sang last week, The Spirit of the Lord is on me now. And if you would like to come and kneel at this place of prayer, make your own prayers, please do. Escaping from the boxes, there you go again, God, moving to the margins, taking love to the outcast and the alien, breaking through the barriers we've constructed from our prejudice, a light that shines into the world's dark corners, unfettered by our selfishness, unhindered by our blindness, there you go, defying our expectations, surprising us with the wideness of your grace. There you go again, God, slipping through our fingers, escaping from the boxes put around you, crossing fences of theology we build to hold you prisoner, a wind that blows beyond our closed horizons, uncaptured by our doctrines, unbounded by our dogmas, there you go, defying our expectations, surprising us, with the freedom of your grace. There you go again, God, calling us to a journey, prodding us to leave our shells of comfort, bidding us to examine the rigid shelters of our thinking, a voice that reaches deep within our soul, 
undiscouraged by our stubbornness, patient in our fearfulness. There you go, defying our expectations, surprising us with the closeness of your grace. The Spirit of the Lord is on me now.